Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 welcome. That's right, I said it four times because we have a packed house today. If you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. Today's buzz, well, I don't want to sing, but I just might have to to give you the idea. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life, and I'm feeling good. Michael Buble, please forgive me for botching your song, but the topic, feeling good. Let's talk now. We all know that prevention is better than cure. Come on. You take care of issues. You take care of your health. You don't want to get sick. You don't want to get a disease. You want to prevent. We're all smart enough to do that. But today, healthcare does not have a systematic approach. So it falls upon you and me and everyone we know to decide whether we choose to live a healthy lifestyle or not, and how and how much and when and where we choose to do this. Now consider this. If life sciences companies would make prevention a core competency, what a thought, then doctors and insurers and patients and pharmaceutical companies could work together to broadly improve prevention and create a win-win-win-win-win for everybody. That's right. I said two words, everybody and everybody's everybody, meaning it would be a beautiful world. Sounds great on paper, but how can this happen? Our topic today, if you haven't guessed, is pharma. We're Focusing on pharma, pharma and preventive medicine, poised for the future or for failure. Big topic. That's why we have such a big panel. I'm going to get started introducing them right now. First up is Dr. Paul Tana. If you're looking him up, it's T-U-N-N-A-H. He is uh, from Pharma Forum Media. It's his company. And he sent me a very interesting quote. We've all heard it a million times. I had to figure out when it first became part of the lore. The quote is, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Beautiful. Well, I found that it was first noted in those words in something called rustic speech and folk Lord, back in 1913. So, Dr. Paul Tana, welcome. Are you eating your apple today, Paul? I might well be, Bonnie, and thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully you can hear me okay. I think there's, there's probably a little bit of echo, but we'll, we'll bear with it's it. It's good. So. It's, it's better than we expected. It sounds great. So you founded Pharma Forum Media in 2009. I need to mention that. Tell me, how, did you, how come you picked this idea of the apple a day? It's so basic to our topic. It's actually very beautiful. So talk to me. Well, the quote itself, I, I spell Apple with a capital A because we all know that prevention is better than cure. And that's where the original phrase comes from in a sense of have a healthy lifestyle and you won't get so sick, you won't need to see the doctor. Um, but we know that's potentially a challenge for the pharmaceutical industry. And I think the real challenge now is the prevention mantle is being picked up by the tech companies. So Apple with a capital A, we're seeing all these apps and sort of self-monitoring devices come out that are helping people pick up signs of disease earlier, help live healthier lifestyles, monitor their own health. So is that a threat to pharma? Potentially. But I think it also could be an opportunity in a sense of picking up things at an earlier stage means treatments are more effective, and that could play into pharma's hands. So I think it's a bit up in, in the balance at the moment. And I guess my sort of final opening comment on that would be, you know, even with all this tech, none of that takes away from the age-old challenge of prevention which is getting people to think about the longer term within a short-term time frame. And that remains a bit of a challenge. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, do you think people across the, I'll call it the demographic spectrum, meaning teenagers, all the way through the greatest generation, through the boomers, the millennials, the Ys, the Xs, the ABCs, do you think everybody is embracing this concept of we are the owners of our own health? Do you think it's something that's just still breaking news that people have to think about and say, oh, really? Well, maybe it's too much trouble. Maybe it's a great idea. What do you think the adoption is? So I think it's starting to permeate throughout. I think that's a great question. And, you know, I think there is a certain generational thing where digital natives, the younger generation, have grown up using these devices and they're used to measuring their own health. And I think there's also a, a data privacy aspect where, you know, certainly people of my generation, I'm in my early 40s and older, are a little bit concerned about data privacy and where all this information is going. 
But I think the younger generation just accepts that that's a fair balance for having more control over their health and more knowledge about how they're living their lives. So I think there is a certain generational aspect to it, Bonnie. Thank you. I appreciate your indulging my question, and welcome to the show. You do sound very good. I know you're on a speakerphone, but it's coming across fairly clearly. So thank you, Paul. And now let's invite our second panel. My pleasure. Let's invite our second panelist. It's Ralph Marcello. He's a principal in Deloitte's Life Sciences Consulting Practice, and he serves as Deloitte's biopharma leader. That's why he's here today. And Ralph has sent me an interesting quote from somebody I never heard of before named John. Josh Billings. But in case you're looking for Josh Billings, his real name is Henry Wheeler Shaw. He's a famous humor writer and lecturer in the U.S. and never heard of him before, but he is considered second only to Mark Twain as a humorist writer during the latter half of the 19th century. And here's a quick side note, a little trivia. Ralph, you may not know this. Henry Wheeler Shaw, a.k.a. Josh Billings, was expelled from Hamilton College in his second year for removing the clapper from the campus bell. I'm just going to let it go at that. Here's the quote. Health is like money. We never have a true idea of its value until we lose it. Great quote. Ralph Marcello at Deloitte. Welcome. How are you, Ralph? Hi, Bonnie. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. We're delighted. We love having Deloitte on the show. There's a lot of good friends there. Uh, shout out to Carla Neal and a lot of other people who support Game Changers Radio. So tell me, did you know all this background information about Josh Billings when you picked the quote, Ralph? Uh, no, certainly not. Uh, this this <laughs> quote, I, I selected this, came across this a couple years ago, and it all started out with, uh, my having a conversation with my son, who was about seven years old at the time, and the only thing he would eat is hot dogs and mac and cheese, as I'm sure a lot of us with kids can certainly appreciate. And trying to get uh, my kid to eat healthy uh, it was certainly a chore. And then we got into a conversation of healthy uh, and started talking about exercise and the fact that I spend a lot of time working in healthcare and. As a seven-year-old, you know, they're pure in their thought and questioning. It's, it's wonderful to see. He, he asked the question, what is health? So how do you explain that to, to a kid? So, you know, you immediately go to, I immediately went to, well, you feel good. And for a kid, that's kind of hard to understand, right? So then you immediately go to the negative side of it and say, well, you know how it is when you feel sick. You don't want to feel that way. You don't want to go to the doctor. You don't want to go to the hospital, et cetera. So we went down that path uh, with him, and he was starting to better understand what health really meant and what it meant to be healthy. And then it was really interesting because a couple weeks after that conversation, I came across this quote, and then I said, let me try to explain, let me go back to my son and try to explain it to him. And uh, I did it in the context of him buying a Lego and money he had saved up in buying a Lego and the fact that he didn't have the money anymore and he couldn't buy anything else. And then he really, really understood what it meant to protect that amount of money that he had. So I, I thought this was something that was uh, really relevant for for a child, it worked well to communicate what that was for a child, and uh, I use it quite frequently now uh, in talking to some of my clients uh, because it really rings true with a lot of folks. You just don't know what you have until it's gone. Very interesting. That Doesn't that remind us of um, a Joni Mitchell song, Ralph? Exactly. Big big yellow taxi. Hey, they pave parking they pave paradise and put in a parking lot. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Well, we've got all kinds of cultural references. Thank you for that interesting information which uh, talking about your son goes back to one of the questions I asked Dr. Paul Tana just a minute ago about what part of the population does this resonate the most with? Thank you, Ralph. Welcome to the show. Looking forward to a lot more and if you look up uh, by the way, look up Josh Billings his history very eccentric, very interesting, very noteworthy. So you picked a real winner when you, you decided to quote him. Thank you for that. And now I'd like to welcome our third panelist. I told you we had a packed house today. It's Shubro Malik. If you're looking him up, it's S-U-B-H-R-O, last name M-A-L-L-I-K. He's an associate vice president and head of life sciences, Americas and Europe for Infosys. And Shubro has sent us a quote from one of the icons of Words for the wise, of course, it's Benjamin Franklin, one of the 
founding fathers of the U.S. Franklin was a busy man. He was a polymath, a leading author, printer, political theorist, politician, Freemason, postmaster, scientist, inventor, civic activist, statesman, and diplomat. And the quote is, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Shubro, I hope Benjamin Franklin was in charge of his own health care because he was a busy guy and he needed to stay healthy. Shubro, welcome. How are you today? I'm good, Bonnie. How are you? And thank you for having me on the show. We're so pleased to have Infosys back with us. And a shout-out to Susan Rafizada at SAP for bringing you into this conversation and for putting together this panel. Thank you, Susan. I know she's listening. So, Shubro, tell me, are you a big follower, a big fan of Ben Franklin, or how did you come to pick this quote? Well, Ben Franklin, like you said, is one of possibly the most intriguing uh, personalities that you would come across in history, a person who is one of the founding uh, fathers of uh, United States, he's a scientist, he's a poet, uh, God knows what else. And he was actually healthy. I think he lived to a great age of 84 before he passed away. So he's a, quite an intriguing character uh, in history. And so I've been kind of enamored by what he does and what he has accomplished in his life. But let me give an interesting fact about this quote. I don't know if you know. This quote was actually made uh, by him in, I think, around 1735, around that time. And it was more to do with encouraging his city of Philadelphia uh, to have fire, fire prevention and uh, fire protection uh, systems in the city. And he actually was advising uh, the city council on what, we, what they need to have as best practices, uh, including things like cleaning chimneys, uh, to kind of uh, make the houses more fire, uh, so that no, uh, you know, prevent the fire, and then if the fire does happen, uh, set up a, you know, a firefighting kind of a, uh, a group, which did not exist at that point. So that's where this quote comes from, by the way. I love that. So I'm not the only one who likes to do a lot of historical lookups and, and trivial lookups. That's more than trivial. Thank you very much. Very interesting. He was quite a guy. And I bet uh, I bet he and maybe his wife had to look out for how much coffee he drank to stay awake at night and working on the lightning rods and all that good stuff. Somebody was taking care of him because you're right. He actually was born in 1706 and lived till 1790. So he was in his mid-80s, which was quite an achievement health-wise back in the day. Thank you, Shibro. Pleasure to have you back. I know we've spoken before, and, and welcome back to the show. And now let's invite another returning panelist. Very happy to greet Joe Miles, SAP Global VP of Life Sciences Industry. Joe? has sent me a very interesting quote from somebody named Francis Picabia, whose full name was Francis-Marie Martinez de Picabia, who lived from 1879 to 1953. He was, as you might have guessed, French, an avant-garde painter, poet, and typographist. He became associated with Cubism, and he was one of the early figures of the Dada movement in the U.S. and in France, later associated with Surrealism. And Joe, here's a little trivia about this guy. In 1894, Francis Picabia financed his stamp collection by copying a collection of Spanish paintings that his father owned. He switched the originals for the copies without telling his father and sold the originals for cash so he could start Start a stamp collect. We got some real Lulus here we're quoting today. And here is the quote, fascinating quote. Our heads are round so our thoughts can change direction. And Joe, I bet he wished his father's head would have gone around the other way and not watched him sell off his paintings. Joe Miles, how have you been? Been a long time. I've been fine. And I, I you know, I chose the avant-garde uh painter, artist, whatever, a bit of a renaissance man, because I thought it was kind of a, an interesting topic on a lot of different levels, but I did not realize it was quite as avant-garde as you just described. I didn't do all the research that you did. Uh, that's okay. So, it's my pleasure. Individual, though. Yeah, yeah, he was. So tell me what this quote means in terms of our topic of pharma, future, life sciences, prevention, cure, all that good stuff. Well, I thought it was appropriate in the sense that, um, you know, it's a fairly straightforward uh, topic in the sense of prevention, obviously, obviously, uh, you know, a good thing. I think we would all agree that it's a good thing. But I think it's also reflective of over the years um, when we went through the, and you continue to see these revolutionary drugs and products that are developed by the, the life science manufacturers. And I think for many, many years we thought, you know, from a pharmaceutical perspective in particular, that you could just take these magical drugs and, and your life would be a would be a great thing, right? And life, you'd be oh, healthy yeah. and 
and your mm-hmm. your ailments would be resolved. And I think what's come round and come full circle is that certainly prevention and um, and some of the medications are very effective at de- treating the various disease states, but it also gets back to the basics of living a healthy lifestyle to monitor, um, take care of yourself, to have a good diet, to get exercise, to use it or lose it, so to speak. Um, and I think some of the comments that were made earlier and that our ability now to monitor those uh, those lifestyles and monitor your, your health information at a much more um, granular level, but also at a much easier way to, of monitoring it with the, the with the apps and with the cell phones and the smartwatches and so forth. And I think that's uh, it's it's making it's taking that to a whole other level in terms of where we were 25, 30 years ago to where we are where we are now with the current capabilities and the current perspectives on things. Thank you very much. Any uh, comments on the quote from? I'm looking here. Any comments on the quote from uh, Dr. Paul Tunna, the the that goes way back, Apple a day, but of course he's modernized it with the capital A. Are you taking an apple a day? Or are you wearing? I should say, Joe, are you wearing an apple every day to keep the doctor away? I am wearing an apple every day. I just have my Apple iWatch uh, on right now, actually, uh, with my Apple phone and so forth. And I have plenty of Apple uh, various apps to uh, to monitor my uh, my activity, which typically should be more than what it typically is from an exercising perspective. But you know, you do what you can. So. But you know what? It makes your head spin around thinking about what you should be doing that you're not. But at least you know what you're not doing. So. I think that's a tautology, Joe. I think that's where reasoning just goes around and around and around in a circle. Joe Miles, welcome back. Delighted to have you back on the show. And now it's time for our little storytelling segment. Those of you who've been on before, Shabro and Joe know what this is all about. So let's see how Dr. Paul Tana and Ralph Marcello do. Paul, I'm going to start with you. First of all, where are you calling from today? I know our panelists all over the world. Where are you calling from? What time of the day is it? And what's in your cup? In other words, what are you drinking right now or what are you planning to drink after the show? Dr. Paul Tana. So I'm based in the uh, in the UK, Bonnie, and actually today I'm, I'm up uh, near Manchester, which many people will know because of association with Manchester United, the football team. So whilst I have a nice cup of coffee in front of me now... It's about four o'clock, just gone quarter past four here in the afternoon, and I'm very much looking forward to enjoying a local beer. And one of the great breweries that we have in the north of England is called the Black Sheep Brewery. Uh, It's very close to my heart for a number of reasons, because rowing has always been a hobby of mine, and a number of years ago, Black Sheep Brewery wanted my crew to go and race in Boston in the head of the Charles. Uh, We didn't win. Unfortunately, but we are very appreciative of the opportunity to do that. So there's a bit of a bit of a transatlantic link there. But I'll tell you the most important thing about my my pint of black sheep, which I'll be enjoying later on, which is it will be served slightly warm, and it will be pretty flat. And as an Englishman, I have to say that is a perfect pint of beer. Interesting. Repeat that again. So it has to be what and, and flat? What's, what are the words again? So, so English beer to us, I guess, is more what you describe as ale. And, you know, proper English beer is, is not sort of fizzy. It's not too carbonated. It's pretty flat. Um, and it's served at room temperature, so a little bit warm. It's not ah. chilled. And I think this is a bit of a transatlantic divide, potentially, in, in how we enjoy our beers. I think very much the case. We're all talking about give me a cold one, give me a brewski, get me something right Indeed. out of the fridge, right? We want that we want that sweat on the bottle to show that there there is uh yes, that it's cold inside even though the room is warm. Very interesting. Thank you for the the ale lesson, Dr. Paul Tana. And now let me circle over to Ralph Marcello. Ralph, where are you calling from today and what's in your cup? Yeah, Bonnie, I'm, in, I'm actually in Philadelphia today. I uh, have a series of client meetings this afternoon. Uh, although I have a nice cup of coffee in front of me now, uh, it is getting close to 11.30 a.m., and I'm hoping at lunch to uh, meet with a colleague of mine, and there's a wonderful wine bar that is around the corner from our office that uh, I'm looking to go in and even though it will be noon, uh, I'm <laughs> looking to go in and have a flight of Cabernets that that this place has that is just outstanding. I uh, I grew up actually uh, around wine a lot. My grandparents uh, made wine. My father made wine. Uh, I started to make wine a few years ago, so I've gotten really into the art, not the science, of making a great Cabernet. <laughs> 
and always enjoy tasting uh, new types of Cabernets from different regions around the world. Thank you. What an interesting thing. Uh, when you dabbled in winemaking, Ralph, any particular uh, shade of wine you were trying, and how was it? <laughs> I, I certainly enjoy making uh, Cabernets and Pinots. I uh, definitely like to stay with a little bit of a heavier, uh, full-bodied type of red type of red wine. And, uh, you know, there's different ways you can certainly get involved in winemaking. If you have the space and all the equipment, you can certainly uh, start with the grapes and go through the crushing and pressing and fermentation process yourself. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have all the equipment, uh, so I start with the juice already pressed and ferment it from there. Thank you very much. And we won't tell a soul that you're going to go on a flight of cab tasting at noon today. Uh, but you are in the home of Benjamin Franklin, I think. So toast Ben when you have when you drink up, okay? Please toast Benjamin Franklin. That would be very, very nice, even though it wasn't your quote today. Thank you, Ralph. Nobody knows this but you and me. It's just our private conversation here. Yeah, right. Let's talk to Shubro Malik. Shubro, where are you calling from and what's in your cup today? You know the drill. Talk to me. Yeah, so, uh, Bonnie, I'm in London today, uh, even though I'm originally based in New Jersey. I've been traveling around, so I had a, a nice tea before I got into uh, this uh, call. Uh, but you know what? Uh, since we talked about it last time, I actually uh, tried a new coffee shop. I was in Frankfurt yesterday, if you can believe. And, uh, you know, from where I stay in the Intercontinental, uh, across the street, there is a small little coffee shop. It's called Klein Mine, you know. And check it out. Mm-hmm. It's clientandmine.de. Uh, it's one of the best coffees I've ever had. And it, the double espresso there was to die for. And I was introduced to this by the uh, concierge at the hotel, and he actually offered to pay if I didn't like the coffee. Uh, so actually, wow. I, I, I'm not looking forward to a coffee tonight. Uh, but, uh, you know, in UK, you don't get good coffee. Nothing against the uh, people here. <laughs> uh, but in Europe, in Frankfurt, if you're ever there, try the coffee. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. You found out, wow, he offered to pay for it if you didn't like it. How often does that yeah. not happen? Well, that's a winner. you got to go back there. I, so, yeah, Bonnie, so what I did is I actually bought a cup of coffee for him when I went back because it was so good. Very mm-hmm. nice. Very, very nice. Good story. Thank you. And Joe Miles, I think you're calling from Germany today, if I'm not mistaken. Where are you exactly? What time is it? And what's in your cup? Well, it's about 5.25 or so here in southern Germany. I'm just south of Heidelberg um, in our corporate headquarters um, here. And uh, I'm, I'm moments away from trying uh, – actually, I've had this a little bit earlier. It's a fun little wine. It's Germany known for their – in southern Germany known for their Rieslings, a lot of the white wine. But we uh, – I was actually uh, introduced to a local uh, – a very local uh, wine, a, gra- a grape that's uh, apparently a Franconian grape, which I am not as fluent in winemaking as I think Ralph is, but uh, uh, always interested in trying something new. It's a Tauber Schwarz wine, which is uh, a bit trocken, as they say down here, and um, mm. and it's a fun little wine, so uh, I look forward to, uh, to having another glass of that uh, momentarily, so. Well, obviously, we have a very health-oriented panel because they know where to find the good stuff. (laughs) So I'm just going to say to all of you, drink up, but not until we're done with the show. Shout out to Susan Glafizada and Brad Borkin at SAP for helping us put this together. Great panel. And a shout out to Michael Buble. I hope I didn't offend you when I tried to sing your song because you're, you're fantastic. So whatever you're drinking, Mr. Buble, go ahead and have another one on us. What can I say? I don't think he's listening to you. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We have a very important topic. We've started talking about prevention and cure. What about standardizing prevention as a core competency of life sciences companies? And then we can gather everybody around the campfire, the physicians, insurers, patients, pharma companies, and we can broadly improve prevention. And then everybody, everybody will be a winner. That's the goal. We're going to continue the conversation in our roundtable when we come back. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Justin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap you can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Here we are. We're back. Great conversation today. We're talking about pharma and prevention. Poised for future? We hope so. Or failure? We hope not. Let's see what the health of pharma and life sciences companies is going to be. We're talking right now. We're going to start the roundtable with Dr. Paul Tunna, who founded Pharma Forum. All lowercase. Just spell it out. P-H-R-I-M-A-P-H-O-R-U-M Media in 2009. And, Paul, I'm looking at your notes. Here's a provocative topic. You say medicine is becoming a B2C business. Tech companies are going straight to the consumer with wearables and diagnostics, but pharma is used to working with the HCPs. Paul, let's expand it, please. So I think, um, yeah, it's an interesting topic, Bonnie, and I think, you know, the Internet revolution, the growth of digital, has really brought information to people about their health that just wasn't accessible 20 years ago. Whereas historically, you'd have a problem, you'd go to your doctor, they would tell you what's wrong with you, Now people have a problem, they're going online, they're finding out a lot about what they think might be wrong with them before they do that. But I think the other opportunity that's created as technology companies have come to the fore is building on that wave of information. You have technology companies like Apple coming in and helping us proactively manage our own health and going straight to the consumers. And a good example of that, just briefly, is not just the tech companies like Apple, but look at companies like 23andMe, the personal diagnostics company. Mm. They don't have a heritage of how you're supposed to work with the regulators, what the process is. They're just getting straight out there and working it out as they go along. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a bit of a challenge, perhaps, for the, the pharmaceutical industry, which has been used to working in a very regulated way and, and quite a mind shift, really. Very much so. Thank you very much. Ralph, we're going to keep this moving quickly because we have so much to say. Ralph Marcello, love to have you comment on what Paul Tunna just started for us. Uh, yeah, I think it's just so relevant today. We, we conduct a annual survey of healthcare consumers, and what we're finding is that there's increasing engagement across three main areas. One's around partnering with providers. The second is the uh, focusing on uh, online resources, and the third is relying on technology all around us. You know, the interesting thing around uh, the provider aspect of this is that 34% of the survey respondents strongly believe that doctors should encourage patients to research and ask questions about their treatment. Uh, and we see that 58% of folks feel that doctors should explain the treatment cost to them before decisions are made. So consumers are now becoming a much more active part of the dialogue, predominantly due to the fact of resources that are available to them and being able to do their own research and truly become part of the decision-making process. Very well put. Thank you very much. Yes, and Shibro Malik at Infosys, let's hear what you have to say on this, please. Uh, So I think, uh, Bonnie, the uh, issue which we think more in terms of the pharmaceutical companies uh, you know, the way they were being uh, compensated for discovering drugs which actually uh, kind of cure a disease is slowly starting to go away. You know, even the healthcare business, the payers, they are actually forcing more and more towards the prevention side. And it's a very complex issue because as you look at prevention, the issues become who's going to pay, do we have a regulatory framework, etc. But 
with the advances in technology, especially in genotyping, and I think Dr. Paul mentioned about 23andMe, uh, you know, the ability today for the pharma companies to identify what really causes the disease very, very early on and either build a prevention for it or, or cure it very early on has gone up dramatically. So as an example, uh, Gilead has a drug for hepatitis C called uh, Harvoni, which is actually directed toward a very specific kind of a gene type. So those kind of medicines are coming. There's a lot of investments happening. But what remains to be seen is uh, how will the market for this be created? How will uh, pharma companies be incentivized uh, for doing this kind of preventive work? Because, uh, you know, the payers don't want to pay till they know that you really have a disease and they can figure out what the cost of it would be. So I think it's an interesting trend that's coming core in the core pharma business where they're looking at preventive medicine, uh, but it's going to be a while before I think they can fully get the entire ecosystem around it uh, buttoned up. Thank you very much. Very good uh, commentary there. Joe Miles, thoughts, please. Yeah, so we're kind of building on some of the similar themes. We see the certainly the role of the the empowered patient really uh, exerting themselves. And, and you can see a lot of statistics, and some of those speakers highlighted some of those where we're seeing as much as 75% of patients expect to use any, some type of digital technology to, to monitor and evaluate their own health and becoming much more fluent with the Internet, accessing information on the Internet, clinical trials, et cetera. That, that certainly is going to continue. But I think the other, the other part of it from the, provi- or from the manufacturer perspective you know, they are definitely looking at ways in which they can improve the outcome, uh, specifically because the reimbursements are, are going to be based on the outcome, the efficacy of the outcome, uh, to the patient level. So they're, they're working with genomic information to try to identify specific pa- patient populations that have a much, uh, much better opportunity. You know, they're predisposed to uh, a better outcome based on their genomic profile. And that is happening in a, in a variety of ways, and I think it's only going to continue to grow. And you look at it both from a chronic disease state where you can, ha- you can monitor patient populations or identify patient populations based on their genomic state, but also from a, a predisposition perspective. And that, you know, organizations are now looking at ways in which if they can identify a genomic uh, marker that is a predisposition to a specific disease state, what can they do in a preventative sense to try to, you know, slow or even halt um, the inevitability of that uh, of that marker producing, you know, turning putting the patient into that disease state. So, a lot of fascinating um, research going on right now in that in those areas. Thank you very much, Joe. I'm uh, normally I would go back to you, Paul, and have you wrap up on this, but I want to make sure we cover a lot of good talking points here from the whole panel. So, forgive me. I'm going to move to Ralph Marcello at Deloitte. Ralph, interesting point of view here. You said to me in your notes, employers are bullish on wellness programs. Most consumers view wellness programs as a perk at work, but put in place by the employer, they're designed to reduce the costs, of course, and increase employee health. So is this an example of a win-win that may be financially motivated through improving employee health? Ralph, talk to me. Yeah, absolutely, Bonnie. There's no question that we as a country, uh, as society, are struggling with chronic disease and unhealthy lifestyles. And employers really do play a significant role in providing and financing health insurance and have a significant stake in maintaining employee productivity, the health of those employees uh, at, at the employer. And you know, these responsibilities that these companies have have prompted many companies to provide what we'll call wellness programs and activities to encourage a healthier employee lifestyle. But it's not easy uh, for employers to do, and they face many challenges, such as understanding sensitivities and engaging with employees around these lifestyle behaviors, sifting through studies and examples to identify evidence-based interventions, and keeping employees motivated and engaged over time in these types of programs. What what we found is that uh, when offered, uh, we see greater than 90% of employees who want to participate into, in these programs, whether they are voluntary or involuntary, because, as you pointed out, not only do they see the benefit of reducing overall costs, but the outcome that they get out of this is that they're going to lead a healthier lifestyle. 
And uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable on how this has changed over the last couple of years and how the employer has become such a central component of this and has, in a lot of cases, partnered with life sciences companies to provide some of these education and wellness programs, particularly in the chronic disease area. Interesting, Ralph, as you're talking, I'm thinking that it's a new way of packaging something. The employers are saying, yeah, we want them to be healthier. We want to reduce our costs. It's almost like Big Brother is watching you, but in this case, Big Brother is mommy and daddy and brother and sister and aunt and uncle and grandma and grandpa saying, everybody wins if we're all healthy, so damn it, let's just do it, and then not necessarily focusing on the financial benefit. Am I right in that? It's 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 the concept that's financial motive being repackaged in a way that's palatable and people get excited about it. Wow, look what my employer's doing for me. Look at this gym on site and look at these great perks I get if I'm healthy and look at all of this stuff. Is that that a way of looking at it, the spin, if you will, Ralph? Absolutely. And I think the other component of this is now employers are getting more comfortable with uh, implementing disincentives for being unhealthy. So increasing premiums, for example, if you smoke tobacco. Uh, And, you know, it's really forcing people to make decisions as to how they're living their lives, but ultimately that will lead to a better outcome. Thank you very much. Let's go around the room and see what everybody else thinks. So uh, next up, Shubro Malik, what do you think about what Ralph just introduced? We talked about the employer POV. Yeah, I think the uh, employer POV is definitely coming uh, you know, they are trying to reduce uh, uh, their costs of uh, providing health care to the employees. It's ever-increasing. But I think more fundamentally, uh, I-, I go back to the point that, uh, you know, if you look at our life sciences companies, and I think Joe mentioned this, that we are uh, moving into pay-for-outcome kind of a business. Uh, I-, I think the, in the longer term, uh, we will see two things happen. We will see, in my view, uh, you know, a healthcare paradigm that's emerging where people will eat healthy, live healthy, and will be incentivized for doing that. Having said that, the payers are still struggling to figure out how to do it in real-time basis. Uh, as an example, uh, there is a company called Airville, spelled as A-R-I-V-A-L, Airville, I guess, uh, which actually takes your gene information, and based on that, it provides you uh, with a healthcare plan, which is inclusive of what kind of food you should eat, uh, what kind of exercises you should do, etc. Mm. So it's almost taking uh, the genome information down to providing healthcare. So that's one extreme of it. But I think the, on the other side, uh, you know, we will continue to see this uh, very early stage uh, detection of what you are perceptible to uh, in terms of risks of diseases, etc. that can happen to you and then kind of have either preventive medicines which will take care of that or we'll have preventive measures which will take care of that and thereby reducing the overall cost of uh, health care, et cetera, as we go along. Thank you very much. Reminds me of, uh, oh, about a year ago, we were doing some of these um, life sciences topics on Game Changers Radio, and somebody pointed out there are some banks in Europe that will give you a higher interest rate on your savings if you wear something like a Fitbit and prove that you're exercising on a regular basis, meaning you're a healthier investment for the bank and they reward you with a higher interest rate or a preferred account. Very interesting. It certainly is making the rounds. Joe Miles, love to get your POV on this. Talk to me. Well, I think, you know, um, it's a good point on the the employer-sponsored programs, you know, the wellness programs and so forth. Uh, The only thing I would say, though, is that, I mean, with the We've been doing those for years, and we really haven't seen some of the benefits that we had. I think we had helped as an industry. So, but the whole concept of adherence is really a, an issue, really across the industry, both from employee-led scenario, but also from simply a, a protocol, you know, a medical drug protocol perspective. And that 25 percent, uh, 25 to 30 percent of all initial prescriptions are never fulfilled, um, never fulfilled mm-hmm. by a pharmacist because. You know, for whatever reason, the the patient isn't taking the the product, and so, you know, the the empowered patient has to uh, is certainly going to have access to knowledge and so forth that we were talking earlier. But the incented patient um, is now going to be looking at uh, you know uh, financial incentives um, that if they do want to maintain an unhealthy lifestyle, they're going to have to pay for the right to do that. And I think that's mm-hmm. those types of paradigm shifts um, are really going to make you know. Uh, bring more accountability, I think, to all of us 
uh, on the lifestyles we maintain, on uh, the type of activities we do, the fact that we're a smoker or not smoker, you know, based on some of those things. And I think it's just, it's going to be a really different. Um, uh, you, you'll not have the, the flexibility just to do anything you want anymore. You're, you will have. There will be a price to pay, quite literally, uh, for some of the behaviors. So. That's powerful, Joe. That's very the price you will have to pay if you choose to not have a healthy lifestyle. That's a very strong statement. Uh, yeah, yeah, very, very interesting perspective. Thank you. I'm going to circle back around to Dr. Paul Tana at Pharma Forum Media. Paul, thoughts on what we've been talking about, please? Well, I think it's a fascinating discussion. and The whole topic of incentives for doing the right things and disincentives for doing the wrong things, I think all of that is coming into play. But I think it's important to recognize that we are still quite early, I think, in this journey of of people understanding and monitoring their own health or or quantified self, as it's called. Um, And for me, a sort of interesting example of that was um, a recent study, I think the first big clinical study led by Scripps Health and uh, Eric Topol, who many people will know is is, very interested in, in wireless health and telemedicine. And they took two cohorts of patients, and one of them, one cohort, monitored their health for six months. Uh, and I forget the disease area, so excuse me on that, but they, they looked at the cost. You know, were there increased or reduced costs with that? And actually what they saw was in that short study, it didn't show a difference in costs, but there was a marked awareness shift in terms of people knowing what was having an impact on their health. So I think for me that sort of illustrates there is enormous potential in people understanding their health, but we're probably quite early days in terms of quantifying the financial benefit of doing that and therefore the incentives and disincentives that sit around it. Thank you very much. And guess what? It's time for me to move to a different topic. I'm looking at Shubro Malik at Infosys. Shubro, let's go back to something I mentioned in my opening of the show. I'd like to explore it briefly with you and then go around the table. Uh, we will have time if we keep talking fast to get to one of Joe Miles' topics as well. So the, the statement was, life sciences companies need to make prevention a core competency. And then Shubro, in your notes, you added, pharma companies can achieve more patient data and clinical trials that feed back into their R&D to develop new business initiatives focused on preventive medicine drugs. So why don't you tie this up in a neat bow for me, put a ribbon on it, Shubro, and then we'll quickly get Joe's and Paul's and Ralph's point of view on this. Go ahead, Shubro. Yeah, so I think uh, Bonia kind of just alluded to this uh, at the beginning of the conversation that, uh, you know, preventive medicine has to become and is becoming more core to the uh, uh, core to the pharma business that they're doing. So with all the information they have on the gene information, et cetera, so they are able to uh, actually get to uh, the what kind of uh, medicines that we can have based on the genomic information that they're getting. So as an example, if you take, uh, I talked about one from hepatitis C, but there is a company out there, a very small company called Quarantrix, okay? And it actually has created a platform uh, which actually looks at your uh, DNA, RNA information, and some protein information, and based on that, it can almost predict uh, when you will get a certain kind of disease condition. So uh, it's not a fully advanced uh, thing, but it's something that they are investing. I believe uh, uh, they are very good clients, and they're growing pretty well. So the point is uh, the ability to prevent a disease very early on is becoming core. So if you look at companies like Pfizer and others, they are investing very heavily into uh, vaccines. Uh, Merck is doing that. So uh, I think uh, that prevention, preventive medicine, is going to be the core and the future of the pharma industry as they look ahead. Thank you very much. Joe Miles, thoughts on this, please? Well, it's... um... I mean, we're hitting on a lot of different topics, and as we think about um, the role of, of, of the information and the devices and the data that's coming forward, I think it's, it's increasingly um, the, the amount of data and the accuracy of the data is going to continue to grow as we use more and more sensors, more and more um, devices, as we were you know, kind of talking earlier, whether it's Apple or otherwise. But I think the last time I read, uh, about a month ago or so, there's about 350 clinical trials that are in, in motion today that, have, that are using some type of electronic, uh, some type of sensor or device to capture patient-specific information and feed that back into uh, uh, the EDC portion of a, of a trial. And typically in those scenarios, you're generating about a terabyte of data per patient per day. 
So you get these massive amounts of data. And I think what that's going to help us with is, one, it's, it's going to be very, very accurate relative to maybe patient-provided information in the past, and you have significant amounts of data, which gives you statistical relevance at some level, and, and your ability now to start collating that and, and aligning that and, and looking across the different um, the insights across all of those different data points will become very significant. And I think that's, that's an area that we're you know, just getting started in. Um, you can see the acceleration of that both in a clinical context but also in a, in a commercial context if you just think about things like the Apple Watch or whatever that are doing it for already approved drugs and, and the awareness we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. But I think that's a, definitely something that's continuing to grow and, and is going to really um, hopefully reduce the cost and time and inconvenience associated with a lot of the trial work is we're able to capture massive amounts of data in a much shorter period of time with, uh, and also being able to recruit patients, identify patients, you know, in a very quick mode based on certain parameters. So. Thank you very much. Paul Tana, thoughts, please? Well, I'm going to fly the flag for the, uh, the pharma industry here, actually, Bonnie, because, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I believe the industry does a lot of great work, and I would argue, to some extent, they're doing a lot of prevention already in a sense of, you know, some diseases like some of the tumor types, the cancers, which were killers 10 or 20 years ago, if they are caught early enough with treatment, you can prevent those pr- from progressing to a stage where they, they really are at that kind of, you know, life-limiting stage. And I think at the moment that's obviously defined by traditional diagnosis when you have an ache or a pain, but you, you play that back to picking that up earlier. I think those kind of preventative skills can be brought into play earlier, build on the expertise the pharma industry already have, get that treatment out there earlier, and then you really are starting to manage some of these very limiting, very fatal diseases at a very early time point through medication. Thank you. Let's turn to uh, Ralph. Ralph Marcello at Deloitte. Thoughts on this before we move to something else? Yeah, I certainly fully agree with everyone. Uh, everyone's comments. You know, what's interesting is if we take uh, a look at other industries, particularly retail-oriented strategies, uh, and just improving the customer interfaces that the, that path that they've gone down over the last couple of years, whether it's websites, call centers, customer interaction, and making it a two-way dialogue. We're talking a lot about today about collecting information. I think the next step for us as an industry is taking that information, translating it into true insights, and uh, it being predictive and identifiable in terms of what we need to do and be on a new protocol of treatment. What's, what's interesting is this, as we shift towards these value-based care models, and the relationship between the payer and provider become more integrated and collaborative, there's certainly new opportunities that are going to arise for innovative consumer engagement strategies that really support a seamless, personalized customer experience. And there's pharma companies out there that uh, have demonstrated the the ability to do this. Vertex is a great example as a company that plays in the orphan disease state for cystic fibrosis. And they, uh, you know, they essentially create communities with, that people can socialize among, share their experiences, talk about what works, what doesn't work. And uh, we're going to see a lot more of that. And, you know, it certainly started off with, pa- I think, patients like me is probably the best example of that uh, many years ago. Thank you very much. Joe Miles, I want to pick up one more topic. We're actually already five minutes before the end of the show. Joe, let's just have you uh, expand quickly, and then I'm going to give everybody about 45 seconds for their predictions. And I have a question that's going to make it very easy. Joe, the medical community will continue to take a more holistic approach to preventive care that not only targets a disease state, but also incorporates diet, exercise, and healthy lifestyle into the overall treatment plan. Joe, let's make this your prediction. You'll go first because you were last. So the question is, is this your prediction that the medical community will continue to take this holistic approach and that doctors across all disciplines in medicine will understand the benefits of this and get away from same old into, yes, let's take a new, a new viewpoint. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think we're already seeing it begin as companies are starting to, as payers are starting to engage with uh, manufacturers um, for pay-for-outcome um, agreements and the reimbursements are being translated. It's just starting and it's very, very early, but they're just starting to translate the the reimbursement models into outcome-based uh, models. 
I think what's been very clear um, with a lot of the manufacturers is the recognition that it's no longer just simply taking a drug, uh, for example, in the pharma company, that, that's going to help the patient. And in order to improve that outcome, it really goes back to taking the, taking the drug, because many cases, as we pointed earlier, they're not taking the drug, but also doing the things that are just very you know, healthy lifestyle, getting your exercise, um, uh, eating right, losing weight, you know, doing the things that we know that in addition to that will even improve the outcome even further. And I think that goes to that. And I think ultimately the incentives will be there not only for the manufacturers to ensure that the patients are uh, they're getting better outcomes for those, uh, for those investments by the payers, but the patients being held accountable for that same type of behavior that if they choose to not live a healthy lifestyle, they will quite literally have to pay for that. Still very early, as pointed out, but I think that's ultimately where it's going to go. Thank you. Very, very strong future point of view. That was your prediction. Thank you, Joe. Dr. Politano, I have a prediction question for you. I'm going to make it real simple for you, Ralph and Chibro. Question is, our topic, pharma and preventive medicine, poised for future or failure? I'm going to ask you yes or no, future, yes or no, failure, and one sentence, why? Politano, go. Yes, because I agree completely with what Joe said, because it's all about outcomes. And unless you can tap into that broader picture of prevention that goes beyond the medicine in the real world, you cannot deliver good outcomes. Thank you very much. Brief and to the point, appreciated Ralph Marcello. Future yes. or failure and why and, and how do you explain? Uh, yes, uh, without a doubt. Uh, the reality is that there's much more focus on value in the industry, and in order to deliver a superior customer experience that's cost-effective, our clients are going to have to remain competitive in this space by providing these types of services. Thank you. Shibro Malik and Infosys, yes or no, future or failure, and one sentence, why? Two sentences. Uh, Bonnie, (laughs) yes, uh, it is a future. Uh, I think two reasons. One, uh, as the industry is moving towards a more outcome-based model, and second, I think today uh, we have the technology and the wherewithal uh, to even imagine something like preventive medicine, uh, which would not have been uh, foreseeable possibly uh, 10 years back. Thank you. I'm going to close. Thank you all. Great panel. I'm going to suggest we do a part two because we, as, as Joe said, as all of you said, this is a huge topic. We've just covered a tiny, tiny bit of it. So I'm going to invite you all back for part two and we'll talk offline. But I'm going to summarize the conversation with what I opened with, the quote from Michael Buble, so I'm feeling good. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life. And I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good about this conversation. Thank you all. Here's my call to action. We're just about at the end of the show. Call to action is fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Thank you to Justin and the Business Channel team. Thank you to Susan and Brad and everybody else who worked on this show. And uh, stay healthy. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.